Hey guys, welcome to Treasure Talks. In this episode, I speak to Gaz Lydon, who is a diving course director and a co-owner of a CrossFit gym in Thailand. Um, we get stuck into a lot of different subjects because he is so diverse with what he does and it's all relatable to what I'm trying to do here at Treasure Talks. So please enjoy the episode. Feel free to give some feedback and I'd just like to mention uh, a little apology for the big bugs, the cicadas, that tried to get a little bit of airtime in the background of this podcast at the start, but they do die down, so please bear with it. And also, do be aware that this podcast is available on a number of different platforms, including treasuretalks.net. So if you want to go online and go to treasuretalks.net, you'll be able to see the show notes which will then let you know what it's all about and if you can forward into the episode a little bit and find the information that you want. And of course, I've got a lot of blogs on there too, so please do check it out and enjoy the episode. Let's get into it. Thanks for joining us, Gaz. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, uh, my name is Gaz Lydon. I'm from Coventry in the United Kingdom. Uh, I've lived in Thailand in Koh Town for about 15 years now. Uh, primarily I work as a paddy course director uh, with Master Divers on Koh Tao, uh, and I'm also the owner, coach and programmer for Koh Tao CrossFit. So you're perfect to have on here because like <laughs> I say, I want to cover travel, self-improvement, fitness and you know, working abroad and you seem to tick all the boxes, like you say, you, um, you dive, you do CrossFit. But what I find interesting, everyone seems to have a story on the island where yeah. you speak to people. Some people say they came out here to travel and they're still, they're still here years later. I've got exactly the same story. Is that your story yeah, as well? Yeah. I came here for a five-day diving holiday. Like I travelled, I was in Australia prior, prior to coming to Thailand. I did a working holiday visa. And that's where I learned to dive. I did my water course and thought it was okay. I wasn't a big fan of it, to be quite honest. Uh, and then I did my advanced course afterwards. We saw a manta ray sort of swimming beneath us. Terrible visibility. It was quite cold water, choppy conditions, but the shadow sort of swam underneath. And I was like, right, I definitely want to go and see one of them again. So I went and did the advanced open water course with the hopes of seeing one of those. And that was much better. Yeah. And then uh, I travelled and did my rescue diver course. And then when I came through to uh, Bangkok, I honestly didn't like Bangkok the first time I went there. I sort of sh- like every other backpacker, I showed up, showed up at Khao San Road, went to see the, the Grand Palace. And, so, and it just wasn't me. You know, I, did, I really didn't like it. I wanted to go somewhere, which I imagined Thailand to be, which is more sort of like tropical island and, and palm trees and sandy beaches and... I went into a a TAT office, which is the tourist authority of Thailand, and went, where do you go diving? And they were like, Koh Tao. So I came down to Koh Tao, walked out to Sari Beach, and like 15 years ago, you know, all the palm trees were still on the beach, you know, before they they built the sort of beach road there and stuff. And I was like, right, yeah, this this is kind of what I imagined it was. And I kind of stayed, I ended up accidentally staying, like, for two years after that five-day initial period of being here to do a diving holiday, did my dives, stayed for two years, became a diving instructor, went back to the UK, retrained as a diving medical technician at the Diving Diving Diseases Research uh, Centre in um, Derryford Hospital in Plymouth, the DDRC. Uh, And then I came back and I worked as an evacuation manager, tender and operator for a recompression chamber network called Subaquatic Safety Services. 
then I left them and went back into diving and I became an instructor trainer and that for the last nine years I've worked in teaching people how to teach people how to dive. Right, so <laughs> there's a lot, to, a lot to cover there. Um, so when you came to Kotao, how long did you plan? To, Just five days. Five yeah, days. Yeah, and how long have you been here? Obviously you went back to the UK like you said. 15 years in total. Now. 15 years in yeah. total. That's crazy. And one thing that stands out to me there with what you said is that you did your open water and yeah. and didn't actually enjoy that much. No, I didn't enjoy it at all. I had lots of problems. I was if if anyone's ever been diving, I was the student that had problems with their mask, with their ears and with their buoyancy. Do you know what I mean? So I was like the worst student from the instructor's point of view. But I really I didn't enjoy it myself. I really felt like the instructor at the time, yeah, and that's the that was the first instructor, so I had no benchmark of what was going on with how good diving instructors were. He didn't really take the time of being able to explain to me how to deal with equalisation, the mask issues, how to work on the buoyancy properly. But the instructor I had afterwards did, right. really took the time to do it, really understood the things that I was going through and demonstrated for the first time I'd, I'd experienced in diving a really important soft skill and that was empathy. You know, They were like, okay, yeah, I had problems when I did my open water course with a mask and taught me through the process that we went through and that was it, You know, I was okay with the mask. Then they taught me through different equalisation techniques and the more I practised it, the easier it became. And then they started to refine my buoyancy through my advance, through my rescue, through my dive master. My buoyancy exponentially improved with the more experience I had and the more I had space to be able to play around with the parameters of, of where I placed weights, what kind of weight I would have at the start and end of the dive, different types of equipment, etc. etc. I, I always find it interesting when I speak to somebody like yourself and realise those kind of problems like you once had them everyone's been that beginner do you know what I mean before you got to where yeah, you are everyone now. started somewhere and I'm going to say that my beginning in diving was not smooth yeah <laughs> <laughs> well all I've done as we talked a little <coughs> bit about before is that the DSD and yeah. I did the first dive and absolutely loved it I couldn't but I found it so alien to obviously it's not natural to breathe underwater and the second one I've panicked a little bit and I've not revisited it again. As we said, I, I actually did one in the UK in a tank. Um, but that for me was overcoming as well. That was very... Yeah, yeah. Because I didn't know how I'd react. But A lot of the time with the panic response you get in diving, it's just, it's... I've, I've watched, a, there's a, a website now called Masterclass. That there's like all these really sort of like great mentors, you know, and I promote it to lots of people all the time. And like Malcolm Gladwell does uh, one of the master classes. It's about writing, you know, he's a he's effectively a you know a, a journalist. Yeah. Um, but he's written a couple of books, Outliers, uh, The Tipping Point, for example, uh, What the Dog Saw, um, David and Goliath. These are all oops, sorry, I'm banging the table. <laughs> these are all really good sort of books that that, that you can reference from. from. But um, in this masterclass, he says this phrase that stuck out to me. And he was like, panic is your brain telling you you don't have the skill set to deal with the situation that you're currently in. Right. And I think when you get people that panic in those early phases of diving, it's because they haven't got the skill set to be able to cope with the situation that they feel like they're in. And in a DSD, you've not necessarily been shown any of that skill set, whereas on the open water diving course you are. You'll run through that skill set like sectionally. The knowledge is given to you, then you practice in a confined, controlled environment, and then you go out into the open water. Whereas in the DSD, it's, hey, look, can you clear your mask and regulator? And then your instructor's going to assist you in doing almost everything else under the water. So something happened outside of the parameters, you know, a unique situation or a novel situation for you. The instructor 
knows how to deal with it, but you don't. And yeah. You might feel that sort of tension, but the instructor can assist you towards the surface and be able to deal with any of the situations that are there. Yeah. You know, the, the, the supervision that we have in the world of diving, from open water divers to discover scuba diver are two different things. You know, open water divers are going towards becoming an autonomous diver, whereas discover scuba divers aren't. They're not, they're not going nowhere near it. They can grab it towards it, but they're not going anywhere near it. Yeah. So we're expected to have visual or physical contact with the DSD at all times. Whereas an open water diver, you know, we can periodically look away to navigate and conduct the dive, etc., etc. Yeah, it seems like that's the the best way to go. Obviously, is the open water because you gain a lot more knowledge. Yeah. And we were speaking before, and I said I didn't. It's taken me this long to understand the levels. You know, you've got. Um, dive master and um, yeah yeah the continuing education chart like yeah yeah i find it so confusing that i've only just got my head around it there's still don't don't worry about that there's still instructors that don't understand everything yeah. <laughs> you know what i mean yeah there's there's a couple of little sort of like you know loopholes or caveats for example of moving around within the system as well and i think it can be a very personalized system if you take it that way yeah. you could turn around and say you're an open water diver that's a keystone course so after open water diver, there is a, a like a multitude of programs really personalised to you that you can take. The next deep keystone course would be in the professional levels, and that would be dive master. After dive master, again there is a you know a wealth of opportunity that's available to you past those two points. But it can be really personalised, and if you're working in diving, like some of the guys out there might be considering using that as a vehicle to be able to travel the world and stuff like that. Um, I'd say don't, don't just consider the, the linear continuing education aspects, consider the non-linear continuing education aspects. And what I mean by that is like, you know, uh, business related courses, movements, you know, anything that would be able to improve your ability to conduct a course. I mean, if you went and did like the animal flow movement program, you might think, how is that going to sort of match up to make me a better instructor? But the truth is it shows you how to move properly and how to show other people how to move properly. And that can be a sticking point with something in scuba diving. Uh, I'll use another example. I had a student who, uh, at the instructor level, they have to pretend to be an instructor, while the other candidates pretend to be students. And he couldn't get past that, you know, pretending that these other dive masters that were in the room didn't know what they were talking about. Yeah. So every presentation that he'd give, he would sort of pull himself short in an explanation and go, but you guys know that. So they don't. So I ended up going online and getting this book. We ended up downloading this book, and it was about uh, improvisational techniques or improv, and really pushing forward with the aspect of every time two people are bouncing off each other, it's always better to say yes or and to help something move forwards rather than someone who's against that would turn around and say no or but. Do you know what I mean? Just that little bit there, I consider that to be a personal bit of development for myself, and that's helped me progress teaching and coaching and stuff like that that when someone's come to me with an idea for the business or for programming or anything rather than saying no or but I'll allow that all that idea to go forward and say yes or and and then try and draw the idea out of them a little bit more yeah. and that's led to lots of different aspects I mean we're starting at looking at opening a coaching coaches program at Kotar CrossFit now uh, we do a lot of professional development leading up towards people who want to go to course director um, with the, with diving as well. Yeah. And also we are started a, an online, uh, it's a Facebook group basically, it's like invitation only, and it's called Think Tank, and it's meant to sort of go through those ideas. Ideas that you're like, okay, I want to make a cartoon about scuba diving, or I'd like to plant trees to be able to, or mangroves or whatever it is, and everyone in there has been designated to turn around and say yes and and. 
to give an accountability, support, uh, and 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 uh, you know just just encouragement. Yeah, I love that, and I, I love how uh, because going back to the the guy not being able to take out of his head, come out of his mind, and say these guys are his students, mm. and because he knows they they probably have the same knowledge base as him. Yeah, yeah. It's always hard to deliver an explanation or a, a definitely a presentation to some other people who you know you're aware they've got that knowledge but I love that you went out your way to kind of improve your teaching and, and look outside the box that's, things I like think that. that's what you've got to do you know there's a do you know Edo Portalis yeah with the movement coach yeah yeah so he had a again you know random quotes of people but he turned around and said a practitioner that's happy with his practice is a shitty practitioner and that, that's another thing that kind of stuck with me a little bit. And I'm like, yeah, you shouldn't ever sort of rest on your laurels to say that's good enough. Everything yeah. can be improved. Just tweak a little bit. Sometimes they fail. You know what I mean? Sometimes, you know, if that sort of pitch hadn't have worked out, I would have turned around and went, okay, we'll move on to the next thing. But it did. And if I hadn't been sort of like in the mindset to be able to go and just read that little bit of a book, you know what I mean? Try it. Just try those techniques, and that that wouldn't have led to think tank. It wouldn't have led to the coaching program that we're proposing down at CrossFit as well. Well, obviously, teachers can can still learn, and that's like 100%. once you have a teacher who thinks he knows it all, then yeah, no, I never want to be in that position. Yeah. That I never want to sleep because I'm still well, like I'm still wanting to learn now. Diving's got this really good capacity for almost infinite growth. Do you know, even if it's just combining programs together, because you can write the programs as well. You can go, I've got a severe, like a severe, an incredible interest in the seahorses of Raja Ampat. Well, you can go and write a specialty about the seahorses in Raja Ampat, about your passion and put it in there and give it validity, validity through training and certification. Yeah. You can, so touching on that, what are the kind of add-ons onto um, being an instructor? Then you can have specialities, is that what they're called? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, look, when you become a standard instructor, you can teach the... the a very linear format, open water advanced rescue, dive master, and then some specialties like peak performance buoyancy, project aware and coral reef conservation. If you want to continue your education, it's based off training and experience. The additional training you can take is things like specialty courses or becoming a specialty instructor. And that can be on different parameters, for example, like geographical parameters, like ice diving, uh, hot springs diver. Yeah. It can be due to tangible extension of your skill set. You know, so overhead environments in wreck or caverns, for example, deep diving or diving on nitrox moving towards the technical aspects. There can be a, sort of a mental and physical aspect to it all as well when you look at the free diving. So being able to push yourself physically and mentally a little bit more in those programs too. Or there's other ones that are ecologically balanced, like the Project Aware programs, as I mentioned previously. There's a whole like realm of those, like shark conservation, turtle conservation, seahorse, you know, whale shark. There's lots and lots of specific ones that are out there that are very niche to each one of their markets. So as an instructor, you can grow into each one of those areas as well. You might be technically based, you might be ecologically based. Uh, you might be uh, like creatively based. So things like photography, for example, would be a good outlet there. It's crazy because you don't really think of those things either, that you can, like you say, it's infinite. There's so many options yeah. where I suppose my perception of diving was you can either take an open water course or you can teach one. <laughs> so yeah. that was so wrong. And then it's only they're, recently... They're, they're your keystone courses, though, like yeah. I say. Without going through those, that like open water course and dive master programme, 
then there is nowhere else to kind of go. Yeah. You are limited within your experience, but once you're through those two gateways, it's infinite. Yeah, that's amazing. It, there, there's so much to do, and I, I've found that recently with the different types of dive jobs and, like you say, the specialities that you can do as well. Yeah. Um, going back, <coughs> because saying all the things that you, you've done now in diving and when you went back to the UK to Plymouth as well, what was you doing before that? What like was this wasn't even in your mind? I'm guessing. You no, 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 no. Candidly, I, I couldn't swim very well. To be quite honest, the idea of becoming a scuba diver instructor was not really on the cards at all. But I, I don't know if you felt this like this way when you started like traveling around stuff like that. I knew when I was at home, I needed to do something, and I knew it wasn't this. That's kind of the position I was in. So I worked in uh, logistics and training in the automotive industry. So I used to teach people how to drive forklift trucks. And before that, I was a forklift driver. You know, I'm from Coventry, so prior to sort of 10, 15 years ago, it, it was the automotive industry. You know, the, the jet engine, turbine engine was invented there. Fastest car in the world was built there. You know, all these sort of things that linked Coventry or anchored Coventry quite heavily in the automotive industry. So um, myself and generations before me who were from Coventry had all sort of worked in the automotive industry. When that started to disappear, there was a lack of identity, I think, within the city. There's a lot of, there's a, it's quite a big service city now. There's two universities there, so Warwick University and Coventry University are both there. And they have a lot of influx of students now, so there's lots more like bars and restaurants and stuff like yeah. that. And it's kind of, the, the city's built around that now. So for someone like me, I really didn't know what to do. So I was like, I know I've got to do something and I know just, I don't just want to follow my job to Birmingham or you know wherever it was going to move. Uh, and I decided, okay, my friends, uh, a couple of them have gone and done the work in holiday visa or Australia. Maybe I'll just do that and see where it heads. And that's what I did, basically. You know, I sort of packed up all my stuff, like gave, gave everything that was in my house away, rented my house out to, to friends of friends and just went, I'll t you know, I remember saying to my mum, I'll see you in three months. I'll probably run out of money. And then I didn't come back for three years. <laughs> it, it takes a lot, though, doesn't it? Like mindset-wise, to suddenly get to that stage where you where you say because you don't know what's in front of you. Like you say, you you said about three months later, that just shows you don't know what's past that, do you? I, I mean, I was still probably a little bit insecure about moving away on my own. Yeah. So the fact that I had lots of friends that were doing it as well made it quite easy. But I was open to the opportunity. And I think once I'd made that move and I was in Australia, I remember my friends turning around and saying, hey, what do you want to do today? And they were like, hey, should we go to the pub? And I was like, come on, guys, you know, you've come all the way to the other side of the world. This might be the only opportunity, like, yeah. like a couple of lads from Coventry, get the opportunity to do this. You know, it's not, none of our friends have ever done this before. What are we going to do? And so I signed up and I decided to do my open water course, like skydiving, rafting bungee you know i basically walked in there with the money that i'd saved up and went into like a, a tour agency and went right what can i do and they were like well the here is like you know the, the the bells and whistles package and i was like there it is before i blow the money in the pub yeah there it is and so i was in that mind frame to turn around and just say yes i was like look I, i'm just i, I want to move forward i don't know what it is just let me try all these different things and the one thing that i like i'll, I'll try and stick with and at the, to say when I did the open water course, it wasn't it wasn't that the thing that I enjoyed the most out of all of those experiences was the skydiving. So I'd sort of gone, well, how do you how do you uh, how do you become the guy that gets someone strapped to them? <laughs> you know, I remember having that conversation with someone. But it definitely it, it wasn't diving. But over time, it became diving, and I end up being underwater rather than in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> it could have been a lot different then. It could yeah, have been I've got a friend of mine, Paul. He went and did both. He ended up being a scuba diving instructor and a skydiving instructor. 
something I wouldn't <laughs> even I haven't done that but I would love to do it to be fair yeah, it's good yeah, yeah, yeah definitely but yeah you have to like approach these things like I think the thing that stands out to me is you must have been open minded once you you went out there I was just ready to do something different I had no idea what it was but when I landed in Sydney and my friends went pub yeah I was like no like I, I we've got the money we could do it it will be a great laugh and I will do it occasionally but I'm definitely going to focus on something else first. So I kind of gave my money away. I safeguarded it yeah. within someone booking all these little trips for me all the way from like Sydney all the way up to uh, Port Douglas. I went and then I ended up getting work and worked in like South Australia a few times. I really liked South Australia. Went over to the West Coast, went all the way up to Ningaloo Reef Dive there and everything came back. And then I traveled around Asia for a little bit doing some diving and then ended up, you know, on my my. Uh, like homeward leg of my journey uh, in Bangkok and that's when I walked into that TAT office and went where do you go diving in Thailand and they said Koh Tao and then that was kind of it. What was your feeling when you walked into the TAT and you sort of... I just wanted to get out of Bangkok yeah yeah that that was it like I love Bangkok now I've got I've got friends that live there I know the city well I'm outside of the sort of tourist trap areas but I just, I just wasn't me do you know what I mean I walked into Bangkok and went it's, it's not for me yeah, I definitely get that. Was there not any part of you that thought you might end up going back home at that stage when you was in Bangkok yeah, yeah. and you thought, I might go I, back I had a flight in five days. So I thought that's 100% so, that's what I was going to do. Yeah, I At the time, you could only apply for your visa for New Zealand from your country of residence. So my mum's brother and all of his family all live in New Zealand. So my plan was to go home, apply for the visa, do a little bit more saving, go and do the same thing I did in Australia in New Zealand. And I ended up staying here instead. When you say that it's a lot easy, like you did it the easy way, or that's what you said, because you, I think you're referring to the fact that you went to meet mates and you could have done it alone. Yeah. It, it must have been so much different traveling then, though, to now. Like now is what I look at, and I think it's so easy. I, I've, I've came out here and I feel like I've done it the easy way. I've bought my laptop, I can work from, yeah. from that, as long as I've got the internet. And it's so westernized on Kotel. For me, I, I love it here because. It is the perfect mix for me, you know. You, you've got your comforts, but you've it's a lot different to the UK. Yeah. Um, but I'm just thinking for somebody who travelled all that time ago, like what are the sort of noticeable changes in terms of on on Kotal? Um, in terms of all of it, like uh, travelling itself, obviously the internet, yeah, tra- like technologies made travel just infinitely easier. It like and uh, you know discount airlines. I mean. Th- Ecologically, we need to cut down on the amount of times that we fly, definitely. But um, it, like budget airlines have made it easy to be able to transport between different countries now. Whereas you know you'd had to go with like a national carrier. You know, I think I flew British Airways to Australia. You know, probably took a Qantas flight then, and you know there wasn't many budget airlines around then. Maybe Ryanair was just kind of starting up in Europe, but that was it. You know, there was no Air Asia or anything like that in Asia. That was that was you know, years later that came out. Internet-wise, booking stuff, you had to go to travel agents. So say when I got to Australia, I had to walk into, it was Peter Pan Travel. I I have no idea if that's still, (laughs) yeah, but like 17-odd years ago, yeah, you had to walk into Peter Pan Travel and say, what can I do? And they would make phone calls, you know what I mean? And like the only sort of hub there was the, you know, travel agent with your, you know, the travel agent's license to be able to go in there and book flights for you and stuff like that. And that's 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 what it was like on on Kotal. Uh, my first bungalow here had twelve hours electricity, so from six in the morning till six in the uh, evening there was no power. 
So it was only from six in the evening to six in the morning. So it, it made sense that you would go diving quite early. <laughs> I thought it was great. You know, it was it was almost beach facing, sort of, sort of kind of a like a little bit of an angle. Had a, a hammock out the front. Uh, I was the first person on our street to buy a TV and a fridge. So my, my place became like, you know, the, the, go -to the hangout. Place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That people would like come and put beers in the fridge, you know, because the, the fridge would keep them cool through the through the daytime. Uh, it was inside, so the, the roof would be quite cool, but you wouldn't want to sleep in there. So you'd sleep outside in the hammock if you finished early, go and do the morning boat, come back, have a little snooze in the afternoon, wake up, six o'clock dinner. You know, back then you, you would choose which restaurant you would go and eat at based off what movie they were playing. Each each restaurant would play a movie. They'd all have a TV in the corner and they'd list the movies outside so you would choose where you were going to eat that night based off the, the movie that was playing. The internet was like one bar every minute, I think it was. ADSL dial-up. So, you know, there was no, no social media. That didn't exist. Do you miss those days a little bit when you think about it like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I definitely miss the simplicity of it all. Yeah. But I mean, I've, I've chosen a lot of the paths that I've taken. Do you know, the path to go to. I mean, back then when I was working as a, a new instructor and stuff, you know, the courses were small, you were freelance, there was no big commitments. I was the one that chose to go through to course director. You know, no one ever prompted me. I remember when I first became an instructor and said, I'll never be a course director. But it just it became a natural progression of the, the hunger of wanting to know more or improve something or do more. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and the same for, for CrossFit, never intended to, to open a CrossFit at all. You know, I've done like PT certificates and stuff, and I started training in CrossFit. I'd introduced the guy that opened CrossFit to CrossFit itself, and he was like, when I'm going to open one, I was like, great, I'll come and train. And then I became a coach, and then I became the owner. So all of those things that built up, I chose them, you know. <laughs> That's but it, I still enjoy the uh, the sort of the hammock days. I've got a couple of dogs and a cat, you know, and the days that I can sort of just disconnect from the internet, sit at home, grab my Kindle, and just relax. They're the best days. Yeah, I've got. I feel like I earn those days now. Rather than, <laughs> they, they were just given every single day. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Obviously, when we organised this podcast, it was from yesterday when I come to train at the CrossFit gym, and you just talked about it there. Yeah. How, how did you end up being, like I say, you went from sort of um, <coughs> strength to strength with Paddy and you're now a course director. How did you become owner of a CrossFit gym? How does that happen? So when I worked at the recompression chamber, I sort of um, stumbled across, a, it was a, I think it was a men's health magazine article and Chris Spieler was in it. So Chris Beeler was kind of one of the, the early sort of athletes, or one of the at least one of the early notable athletes in CrossFit. Him, Jason Kalipa, you know, they, they were they were sort of like the people that, that were winners or there and thereabouts of the early games. You know, the very first ones, sort of like 11, 12 years ago now. And so I I started following him, and social media had just come out there. You know, he was one of the first athletes yeah. I kind of liked. Him and him and GSP, I think, were the sort yeah. of you know, <laughs> like these are the these are the guys, man. Uh, so I, I, I ended up uh, getting a book uh, that was also, I think, a men's health book by a coach called Roberto Dos Remedios, and it was called Cardio Strength, I believe. So me and my friends, we got this book and we built our programming from that. And we started doing that in like the only gym that was on Kotal at the time. And it was just a rusty dungeon. 
it was a place if you were sick in the corner, no one would really worry about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like hosing, you know that kind of yeah. almost like an old powerlifter kind of gym. You know what I mean? You know, like every like everything is irons made of rust. Yeah. You know what I mean? Then they're spitting sawdust. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. You know what I mean? So I want to be doing moonshine in the corner or whatever. <laughs> but that that was it, and it was it was a great gym because it, you know it, you could just go and just sweat yourself in there, and he didn't mind anything, and it was you know it's a good place. Um, but yeah, so I, I introduced him to it and he lent this book from me and I was like, hey, you should look at CrossFit. And there was, um, I can't remember the name of the website, but it was it was GIFs. The only way you could look at the movements that were appearing on CrossFit.com were to look at it and it was called RX.com or something like that. But it was a GIF, you had to download this fucking GIF. I remember that. Is that right? Yeah, 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 of course. You had to download this fucking GIF and wait for it to load to see what a thruster was, I was like, I don't know what a fucking thruster is, it says thruster of muscle up and stuff like this, and I'm like, I don't know, so we'd look at it, and then we'd go to the gym and we'd try and do it, you know what I mean, so we managed to kind of, let's say, master the, the power clean, but snatching was just, we were fucking on, because you couldn't drop, really, you know, Yeah. so that, that, that was a bit of a problem, but then he, he got a bit of money behind him, and he managed to get a, a partner that wanted to open a CrossFit box, so he went and opened the first CrossFit box, um, and as soon as he opened it, you know, they were like, hey, we're opening, this is going to be the CrossFit box. I was like, member number two, I think. You know, I went and paid like a year's membership up front. <laughs> I went, yeah, I want to do it. I want all the equipment, do you know what I mean? Because I'd put, like, obviously it cost a bit of money to go to instructor trainer and, and uh, recompression chamber tech and then going on to course director, etc., etc. So I hadn't got the money to be able to do all the things that he was doing with that. So when he had that money to do it, I was straight away like, here's my membership, you know. Um, and then I went back to the UK and I went to CrossFit Manchester and I did my CrossFit Level 1. But I'd already got a PT certification from uh, Fitness Innovations Thailand in Bangkok. Yeah, You've got a lot of links to put in. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Fitness Innovations, uh, Suzanne Hosley. Uh, I did a great PT course with her. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. You know, uh, learned a lot about, more, more about the sort of like screening process that I really considered before. You know, making sure that people with special uh, considerations were taken into account when I was doing a programme or anything like that. Uh, so I PT for a few friends here uh, and then went back to the UK uh, for a holiday and went to CrossFit Manchester with Carl Stedman, I think it was. He was the, uh, the guy that did my CrossFit Level 1. Um, and that would have been five years ago now. Uh, and then the guys that owned the CrossFit, they decided that they wanted to move on. So they ended up selling their shares of CrossFit and me and my partner bought the CrossFit. She became a level one. And now every five years you have to renew something in CrossFit. So I'm going to Frankfurt next week okay. and I'm going to do my CrossFit level two. Yeah. So when you first, you talked about becoming a PT and, and was you thinking of maybe, was it always like going to be a side thing to the... <coughs> what, what was the thought nece- behind that? Not necessarily. It's just that when we started training in the gym, saying so me and Will had started doing this in the gym and looking at this this cardio strength stuff, I was like, I don't, I don't know if I know enough. That was a big sort of motivator for me to go and do the recompression chamber tech. I was teaching a lot of first aid courses and really felt like I didn't know enough. And if I ever feel like that, you know, you, you, I feel like I've got to go and do something. I've got, I've got to try and you know, satiate that 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 feeling that I don't know enough by knowing a little bit more. And if that means a certification, great. If it means going online and doing something like on Coursera or Udemy or Masterclass or something, I'll go and do that as well. You know, there's, there's infinite possibilities. So that it's made it much easier to be able to do travelling 
through technology, but education's also become really, really, really simple. Do you know, is it is an Isaac Asimov uh, quote that says, "In the age of information, ignorance is a choice." Yeah, yeah, I yeah. saw that the other day. That's that's three good quotes you've got now. I yeah. <laughs> I feel like I need to come up with one now. <laughs> but it's, it's true, you, you know, if I feel like I don't know enough, I, I'm now quite prompted to go and do something. So I went and did the, the PT course in Bangkok because training with my friends, I didn't feel like we knew enough. And then teaching first aid, I went and did the recompression chain, the tech uh, program, because I didn't feel like I knew enough. You seem to make a comparison with it all as well. Like I noticed when we were talking about diving early on, you made a little comparison with coaching and how that would improve not just the diving aspects, but uh, that, yeah. that's something that a lot of people just feel, you know, when going into trying something new, it's very kind of uh, one dimensional where it will actually improve you overall. Like whatever you learn in that time, you can, especially things like teaching, as you say, with uh, being able to educate people and, um, I suppose there's a lot of similarities in being a course director and actually a coach. Yeah, yeah probably a, lot, a lot of similarities. Yeah, I don't think any, any education experience you have should be modular. You know, it can be part of a, a more holistic view yeah. of, of how you conduct yourself, whether that's, you know, if, you, if you're looking for, let's say, in, in CrossFit and the coaching, we're, we're taught to sort of look for errors, you know, spotting the floor. You know, especially when you like a judge or something like that to make sure that the athlete has meet, reached uh, like the, the points of performance to be able to consider it a rep and if they haven't to be able to consider it no rep. That kind of eye definitely came from having to spot the flaws in teaching people how to teach people how to be scuba diving instructors, do you know what I mean? So being able to turn around and say, okay, this is because your legs are in the wrong place or you need to reposition your weights here or consider the fulcrum point on your body when you're doing this. And that, that sort of balance aspect came from teaching people how to drive forklift trucks because the load must be in this particular place. You must load a truck in a particular way. The, the sort of the turning points and fulcrum point on the truck itself are also important things that you need to take into consideration to be able to operate it and lift safely in confined environments where other people may be around. Yeah, there's 100% a linear aspect. You know what I mean? There are connections through everything that you do. Do you know Gary Vaynerchuk is? Yes. Yeah, so he's, he's like obscenely prolific <laughs> in, his, in his content but he did something on I think it was Udemy uh, I think I sat down and did one of the Udemy.com courses yeah and speaking of that it's a, it is a real good that's where you can go on there and I think anyone can run a course about anything yeah yeah, yeah. so I, I got into this sort of like lifelong learning aspect from Coursera so Coursera.org I think it is but it's you had to be a university professor like or at least like joined with a university to be able to get a course on there but of course that left out a, a huge aspect of the market you know people who are university lecturers this really small circle here and then you might have higher education as, uh, educators that are here but then people who have got like vocational skill sets that are out here do you know what I mean to be able to teach you how to draw and stuff like that yeah. so things like Skillshare and Udemy ended up targeting those sort of people but he, he did this one thing and he was like hey you might be the best uh, salesperson in the world but a really massive passion for like uh, stitched cushions. And he says, well, why can't you be the world's biggest stitched cushion expert? He's like, that's a niche market that's out there and you can use Udemy and YouTube or whatever to, be, to pitch yourself and bring yourself up there. And I think that was a really eloquent way of putting it that 
even if you've had these sort of almost three seasons or three lives in one life, driving the trucks, teaching people diving, working CrossFit, there's, there's definitely a linear thing between all those three things, and that was you. So yes. you get these people that are out there listening to your podcast now that are thinking, okay, well, I work in Starbucks. Well, great, you've got excellent customer service. You know the processes to be able to make all these different things, you know, lattes, macchiatos, whatever it may be. Uh, and, you know, you've probably been taught to be out of finance properly, the budget that you need within the, the you know, move up to the manager's job, et cetera, et cetera. So why couldn't you work in another operation that has those same skill sets, even if it's nothing to do with being a barista or a shop manager? Because being a diving instructor didn't really seem to have many similarity or links to teaching people how to drive forklift trucks, except it had instructor in the title, heavy machinery versus life support equipment, maybe slightly different. But the fulcrum point became a very important topic of balancing people out. And now we get people into trim really easily by teaching them how to balance themselves in the water, just like I used to teach people how to balance stuff on a truck. That's, that's a crazy um, comparison. It's, so, it's, it's a great outlook with everything you've said there because, as you say, the, there's a ripple effect with everything we do. And sometimes you notice something doesn't go your way. And then, you know, 10 years later or how many years later, you think, that's why it didn't go my way. It kind of um, stems a new path. Um, yes. Yeah. And obviously, the when you were teaching people to drive forklifts, I'm sure you didn't think you'd be sitting here now no, talking about being a... Being a <laughs> <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, you know, as a course director and an owner of a CrossFit gym in Kota, who would have thought that then? But no. I, I love the, the outlook of thinking that it's it's all it all led from that it's not necessarily all led from that it's but i can definitely draw from my previous experiences yeah, yeah I, I mean it, it, it happened because i was open to it happening yeah i think that's what it was Do you know even if i was reticent like when we when we took on the gym i was certainly the most reticent partner out of, out of the ones that took it on but the belief that my partner had about being able to do it made me believe in it as well. Yeah. And then using things like my previous experience of being an instructor and a coach, et cetera, et cetera, to improve how the, the facility moves forward. You know, just the experience that the people have in there, that's the same experience that people would have to have if they walked into a nice restaurant. Do you know what I mean? It must yes. be one of the prime hours of their day. They must look forward to it. Uh, even if they're like in a bad mood when they walk in, they must walk out of there in a better mood than they walked in. Well, that's that's the same thing in diving or running a restaurant or you know what I mean, having having a uh, I don't know some sort of service in blogging, for example. Yeah. Someone comes to your blog, they've got to enjoy the experience so much that when they leave, they want to go back and do it again. Yeah. That's that's how it works. You know, if you can draw that comparison, I think you'd be okay. Yeah, definitely. With um, CrossFit now, it seems like there's it's worldwide, isn't it? It's still an early in early days of the sport, I'm guessing. How long has it been around now? So CrossFit itself, yeah. I mean, as a, a training methodology, oh, a long time, 15 years. 15. Yeah, I suppose so that's been great. early for a sport. Yeah, but right? it didn't become, it didn't technically become a sport. Like, a, you know, people were doing it and recording their their, their scores or their output or, you know, their metrics to see about personal comparison or, you know, personal improvement within that. So comparing yeah. their, their standardised time for a certain workout, then eight weeks later going back and doing that sort of baseline workout again to look at capacity, strength, etc., etc. 
But the sport-wise, the game started. This would be the twelfth CrossFit Games happening this year in Madison, in Wisconsin. Yeah, so it started on a ranch in California uh, with a guy called Dave Castro. So he kind of organised it all, a program that it happened on his family ranch. And it happened there for maybe the first two, three years. And there's a movie called Every Second Counts, which follows Chris Spieler in the second games. And out of nowhere, a guy called Jason Kalipa wins it. So it just comes out of nowhere. They don't even follow him in the documentary. It's quite funny. But you can have a look at that on Netflix. Yeah, but look, what's, what's the other one on Netflix? Uh, is it There's from... a couple. There's Froning 4. That... So Froning's the only guy to win the games four times as an individual. Um, then there's... Uh, the, is it the world's fittest man yeah, that fit, he's in as well? No, nah, fittest on earth. Fit, that's the one that caught my attention where I'd heard about CrossFit, but I think for some reason I had the, a stereotype. Well, I didn't even know what it was, but I just had a bit of a negative connotation towards it because of what people have been saying. But I, I think that's, like, that's come from this, you know, the CrossFit as a sport aspect. I think my, most people have that issue, you know. So what, what happens well, maybe like eight years ago or something like that, there was a very definite split in CrossFit and CrossFit became a training methodology and a sport. And they're not necessarily the same thing. Do you know, they really are. I think a lot of the, when people talk about like injury rates or extreme weights or something like that, and you're like, no, that, that's the sport. That's not the training methodology. The training methodology is constantly varied functional fitness performed at high intensity. And that high intensity is relative to you as an athlete, yeah, to you as an individual. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it relatively intensive to you. I mean, we trained yesterday, so we talked about it simply in relative yeah. intensity and the weight was light enough, yeah. But, you know, for me, the burpees always kill me, always gas me out. Yeah. So that's, you know, me choosing a lighter weight so I can maintain constant on the burpees in between the clusters and the burpees, that's my intensity. That's me trying to work my weaknesses while playing to the strengths. Yeah. That's the training methodology. Whereas when you see the numbers on the board that say, you know, RX weights and movements and stuff, well, that's the sport. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the CrossFit Games has very little to do with what happens in CrossFit boxes. CrossFit game is a spectacle of the 0.0001% of CrossFitters in the world. And the elite of the elite of the elite. You only you have to see them, them, don't you, to yeah. know that that's like a, a small minority of people anyway. They're the elites and they're... Yeah the extreme I think in any sport you will get you, exactly. you will get that I, I think it always gets I don't know that's an unfair reputation from certain people who don't understand it and I, once watching that documentary that kind of caught my attention I wanted to learn more about it and I was really shocked to see there's a CrossFit gym on Koto to be honest I didn't realise how big it was until recently well I think that you're talking um, this number may be pulled from completely nowhere I think it's something like 14,000 affiliates around the world now with an estimated 4 million members. And they are CrossFit. You know, the CrossFit Games is amazing. Sit there and watch it, but it's definitely not what you should be aiming for. It'd be like watching Jimi Hendrix play at the Isle of Wight Festival and then going, tell you what, I'm going to pick up a guitar and be that good. Yeah. You're not. You're not. Hendrix is a phenom. You know, he's, he's like once in a generation of people like... Froning and Frazier and, and, and David's daughter and Thora's daughter and, and Toomey, you know, these multiple winners of the games, they're, they're not every person, you know, they're, they're, they're people who have won that, proven themselves to be fittest on earth multiple times. There's not many people in the world that will ever do that. And they are not the people that show up at our affiliate. People that show up at our affiliate 
They want to protect their body for longevity from illness and injury, especially things like metabolic illnesses. You know, more people are diabetic now than any other time in history. Uh, you know, making sure that they have fun, yeah, and they stay safe. And that, that's, our, that's our remit. When I took over Kotar CrossFit, we definitely made, we sat down and said, what, what's our mission statement? And our mission statement was education over competition. That's it. When I first came in to join, I think that was quite obvious as well and evident where we were sat down and we were given that education of, you know, where did it derive from? Why why there's these different aspects of CrossFit and the benefits? I liked that part of it because that's that is why I came to CrossFit as well. Yeah. I think it's such a an amazing um functional well I was, I was going to say sport but it's not like you say it's not necessarily always a sport if you if you're going in um just to train yeah if you but, go to your standardized box it's a training methodology yeah you go to a competition now it's a sport yeah but i think it's i'm, I'm seeing a lot of ufc fighters and different people do it. i think it's a great way to like cross over into different types of exercise and olympic lifts and compound lifts are obviously very important for uh, strength and conditioning uh, it's funny that you mentioned that the first people you followed on social media were GSP and did you say it was somebody? Chris Spieler. Well, recently GSP's um, coach came out and he was knocking CrossFit and that was some an example of somebody who really didn't understand what CrossFit was. He was kind of looking at the sport and the, the way they go 100% and he, he's saying, you know, you're not going to recover very well from that. And But it was very... Um, contradict him really when he's training fighters and they'll understand that once they get into the arts again they're going to be going 100% I've I've watched GSP's training programs and he snatches he does you know Olympic lifting he he does lots of gymnastics movements and you might not want to put a label on it but he does CrossFit exactly (laughs) (laughs) that's what it is I think there's a a big misunderstanding there in in some parts sometimes I think people are just trying to look for a target to get a rise out of as well you know and I think like CrossFit's become like an easy target for some people took back Gillian Michaels earlier on and you know you look at her videos and they're just ridiculously non-functional you know just they're, they're, they're I don't know they're they're there's no function to it. They're, you know, they are non-functional movements. Yeah. Standing on a bosal ball on one leg while trying to press a well, dumbbell overhead, and she's like, well, when, "What? What aspects of your life are you expected to?" I call it Instagram yeah. training. That's what. Yeah. That sort of stuff is. It's, it's trying to get that that gif, as you were saying yeah, earlier. Yeah. <laughs> get that three four seconds of yeah, trying. It's, to... yeah, it's novelty movements. Yeah, you're not, you're not getting the most out of your training by novelty movements. It's great to have variety, but yeah. you've got to justify it. You know, you've got to justify it. And when you see, you know, like a, a, a an NFL wide receiver standing on a BOSU ball, catching like, you know, there's a video of one of them is catching like, a, it's got a blue, a purple and a white. It's like a, a three-ended object. Yeah. But he's like throwing it and he's it saying is. to him, right hand white. And he goes, oh, and he grabs it. And he's like, left hand blue. And he grabs that as well. And, you know, and you're like, okay, yeah, he's trying to work on his balance and his hand-eye coordination. That's functional. It's function. It's it's sport specific to that guy. But when you watch her do it on on Instagram, it's, it's terrible. That, that's that's the worrying thing, isn't it? You see, like we gain so much knowledge now. Like you said, with like using Udemy and Skillshare, and there's so much good with social media. But I suppose sometimes we do see these things, and we're like, yeah, we'll give that a go. But you know, have you gone through the compound movements yet, and the things that you yeah, should yeah, be working yeah. on first? I think CrossFit is just 
an amazing way to begin that journey. Go in there and and start the compound movements. For me as well, I think if you if you take yourself out of the limitation of of you know when people talk about like CrossFit, for me again CrossFit's a mentality to me, not just a methodology, and that means be open. Do you know if you want to go and do Edo Portal movement or Animal Flow, Mike Fitch, do you know uh, do it. We do it in the box. Do you know what I mean? We go through lots of kettlebell stuff. You know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the kettlebells. I think they're great grip, great core stability, hundreds of different movements in a confined environment that you can you can go through. And you know, we'll take them out. We'll go paddleboarding and stuff like that. If if you've really got the mentality of being CrossFit, when you look at the games as well, it's not just barbell lifts. Do you know what I mean? It's not just run, row, air bike. You know, yeah. it's not just wall balls, burpees. It's go out there and, and run. You know, when you look at the, the sort of, um, the, the sort, he's got this, this kind of triangle, this pyramid rather of, of, you know, going up. Nutrition is the base, gymnastics movements, weightlifting, and then, you know, the, the, the sports. That sport could be go for a trail run. You know what I mean? Get a bicycle and ride across the, you know, the, the, some plane somewhere. You know what I mean? Go up into yeah. the mountains. Check out, mate. This, this, that's what CrossFit's meant to do. It's meant to improve their abilities to be able to do things outside of that box. Yeah, I've seen it with a friend now. He's started doing a lot of CrossFit. But he's somebody who likes to try his hand at a lot of different things. He's just done an ultra marathon. Um, and you can see the benefit of what CrossFit's done for him. Um, but talking of the benefits of CrossFit, we were talking a little bit before about how it now offers opportunities for people to travel the world as well, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. You can. It, I think that's the something that sparks interest in my friend as well who's doing it because he's a PT. I think he suddenly realised that actually you can. I think I think the PT certification is really important. I think it's a, it's a good one to have as a base. Yeah. But if you want to work in a in a CrossFit box, and there are boxes everywhere around the world now, you have to get the CrossFit level one. And I think that has become more and more a vehicle to allow people, like a modality to be able to go to different countries to be able to work. You know, they can get their, all the certifications that they want and then CrossFit Level 1 on top and then turn around and say, I'm looking for a position in the Middle East or in South America or in uh, Asia or Australasia and then use that as the vehicle to be able to go and experience these different places. And I've sort of seen that before because working in diving for this period of time, People are in diving are generally kind of yes people. You know, they're, they're transient. They want to experience as many different places as they possibly can and live as many different aspects of their life as they possibly can, even if that means seasonal work going home and coming out again or just upping sticks from one place to the next every six months to a year. And when I started seeing people using the CrossFit Level 1 to do that, that's when we had that conversation with uh, Emily Beers from the CrossFit Journal with the uh, Have Barbell, Will Travel. Uh, and we spoke about that uh, at length, that the people are using CrossFit certifications now as a vehicle, as a modality to go and work and live in different locations around the world. And we get those coaches that come through all the time, you know, they have the level one and they're like, hey, you're looking for any help? And, you know, that we, we have that conversation with them constantly. So it's definitely something, you know, again, you guys back at home that are listening to the podcast, um, to have a little look at taking those certifications, things like your open water scuba instructor from Paddy, for example, I think that's a good one, or any agency, to be quite honest. Uh, the CrossFit Level 1 and PT certifications. And something, if you you know, you work in like hospitality, for example, or an English teacher, so something you know, along those lines, those are three big certifications to get if you want to go and travel the world. 
because if you can teach scuba diving and teach fitness and be able to work in hospitality, someone in the world right now is looking for you. Yeah. <laughs> I love the way you sum that up as well because there are a lot of opportunities and things that you can do to that will, like you say, be the vehicle to travel around and experience new places. Um, just rounding it up, I think that's a nice place to round it up there, just yeah. uh, a bit of advice for people as well. <coughs> I just want to ask a couple of questions before finishing. So where do you think you'll be in five years' time? I mean, you've got enough. <laughs> like I say, you tick a lot of boxes already with the course director. I mean, I still think I'll be teaching diving. At yeah. some, but like in some capacity, I'll still be teaching. Like yeah. I definitely figured that was what I enjoyed doing the most. I feel most competent when I'm teaching you know you know most confident going into it um so I'll definitely be teaching at some place somewhere you know what I mean where I don't know that's you know that's how life works five years is is quite a long way away so it could be in a different country it could be in a different agency it could be something you know but I'll definitely be teaching some someone somewhere yeah as far as Kotai CrossFit goes I want it to go on from strength to strength I really do I think it can be even if I'm not here, I think it can be good for the community of Kotal. Yeah. Not enough people on Kotal, I feel, at this point, consider their general fitness to teach. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'd like to be able to develop a fitness for diving program to be able to put it in there outside of the, the, the remit of CrossFit, just to look at diving specific activities and how they relate to fitness. And then look at things like nutrition, mobility, recovery, you know, and, and say, look, this is how you're going to gain longevity in the diving industry. Yeah. And if that model then moves on to different places, that would be pretty fantastic. Uh, I still enjoy the programming. I do all the programming for CrossFit and our sort of uh, body fit class. So no Olympic lifting in that. So uh, I'd love to move forward to that a little bit more. Yeah. CrossFit level two does talk about programming and, and f- uh, floor correction when I get there but it's something I've done for quite a long time now as well. So I, I think I'd be happy to progress into that a little bit more. Uh, and then honestly, probably do a little bit more writing. I've kind of enjoyed that sort of aspect of, of teaching in, in sort of taking more complex concepts and trying to simplify them as much as I possibly can to put forward to the students. With some being somebody who tries so many different things and you're open to learning, like you just mentioned writing as well, is another thing that you're uh, trying to incorporate a bit more. What do you do on a day? Is, is there anything that you do on a daily basis or in your routine that you think? Yeah, so my like my general day would look like I would get up at about six. Uh, yeah. I've got dogs, so I go and walk the dogs, bring them back, make sure they're fed and happy. Then I'll go down to the local coffee shop that opens at six in the morning. So by about six fifty, seven o'clock. I'm in there, have a nice coconut latte, <laughs> have some breakfast. And that's when I'll probably either, I'll go through messages that have come through from the night before. So for like whether it be work emails, private messages, anywhere within the network, because we run three groups now. We've run the, uh, the instructor development course, resources, uh, information and um, employment boards. I've got the Gas Pro, uh, Gasline and Pro uh, group that is all former candidates that are in there that try and help each other out. And then we use the Think Tank one as well, which is the, the sort of ideation and, and sort of um, fulfillment sort of aspect of that. Uh, check on the website, make sure everything's running okay. Uh, any other emails, clear them out of the way. And then if I've got the time after that, I'll open up my book, like try and write down what my goals will be for the day, for example. 
Uh, and then I'd be at work from eight till about five, five thirty. Try and train, try and spend a little bit of time with my girlfriends, <laughs> if that's possible. Usually, usually it's about an hour a day, uh, and then I'll walk the dogs and try and be in bed by about ten o'clock. A lot to fit in there. So routine is like, I suppose, very important. Yeah, my day would fit in if it if it didn't start at a specific time and end at a specific time. Mentally, physically, and even emotionally, I wouldn't be able to fit it in. Um, summing it up then, uh, have you got any any websites or Facebook pages where people can I have, find you? Yeah, yeah, so instructor-development.com is my professional one and then kotalcrossfit.com would be the Kotal Crossfit. Uh, there are plans for the future, but those ones we can talk about at a different time okay. when they come up. You can help me promote them then. Can't yeah, you? sounds good, <laughs> sounds good to me. But thanks for coming on. Yeah, I really no, enjoyed so. it. Thank you very Thank much. You.